Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nish Nicklich, and my guest today is Helen Joyce. Helen is an author and journalist who has written extensively on the trans space. She has looked at some of the consequences that come from looking at these ideas in a rigid way versus a more flexible way and how those two spaces intersect when the real world tries to incorporate those ideas. I think Helen is very respectful in this conversation and it was quite broad at what we looked at. Something that I thought was interesting is dissecting the space between objective reality, one that we can all observe, those things that uh, are in agreement with versus how do we hold and be compassionate and thoughtful and gentle around people's internal subjective worlds and trying to balance those is quite complex and, and, and difficult and I think Helen does a wonderful job. Really enjoyed recording this and having this conversation and a big thank you to Helen and hope you enjoy this episode. Helen Joyce, uh, an, an enormous thank you for coming on to the episode today. Well, thank you for having me on. Look, I'm really excited. I've been looking forward to to this conversation today as I've read your book uh, and 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 thought it would be really interesting to try and reach out. Obviously, as a clinical psychologist, there is a you know a, a challenging space that I can very easily meander through and and discuss in my clinical setting, but it seems that when conversations go more to that mainstream space, uh, they they seem to kind of see the the two uh, extreme sides. And I think your book has done a, a wonderful job looking at this uh, uh, this space around you know the trans world and and the different challenges and and balances that I think as a community we can all consider. And so um, really. You know, excited to to talk to you about the nuances and and, and talk more through your book as well. Um, so maybe we can start with how this came about. What was it that that brought you to writing a book about you know the trans world and 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 what's been occurring? Um, I should say that it's not really a book about trans people or trans lives, and you know people have criticised it because they think that's what it is. And they say, why does a you know someone who isn't trans? Be, why is that person writing about the trans experience? And that's to misunderstand what my book does. My book is about an idea, and that is an idea that affects 100% of us, which is that what matters is what you state, state about your gender identity rather than the sex that you actually are. And since we are actually mammals and we are male or female, every one of us has a sex. And if you change what it means to have a sex or to be male or female, you're actually changing what it means to be human. And that's something that affects all of us. So it's not something that has to be left to trans-identified people to talk about. Um, what happened really is what happens to a lot of journalists. I was asked to write a story about something and I found that story so interesting, I couldn't let it go. So I was a journalist at The Economist since 2005. Before that, I wrote on more specialist publications about mathematics and science and statistics. And before that, I was an academic. I have a PhD in mathematics. But I worked at The Economist since 2005 and did various jobs there. I covered education. I lived in Brazil. Um, I edited the international section and I edited the finance section and then most recently the Britain section. 
And while I was editing the international section, I came across this interesting to me fact that lots more people were identifying as trans than ever had before. And at the time, I was editing a section of the paper that was about global trends. So this seemed an absolutely classic topic, and I ended up writing about it myself. And as I said, you know, journalists do sometimes land on stories that they can't let go for whatever reason. I have friends who left journalism to go into environmental advocacy or um, to work with a family office in uh, philanthropy. And these were things that those people had written about and ended up finding more interesting than just moving on to the next story. So that kind of happened to me. Mm. And what it was, was really this um, this idea that there isn't a, um, a concrete or objective definition for what it means to be male or female, man or woman. And that struck me as something that really, you know, really was going to cause some problems or at least make some changes to the way all of us live. Because although in the modern world, we mostly don't, um, you know, segregate the sexes. We, you know, w women no longer are kept out of certain professions and, you know, everybody can vote and everybody can own property and a man doesn't, you know, isn't the head of the family anymore or whatever. So in all these ways, we've made it less important what sex people are. But there are still a few places where it does matter. And it seemed to me that the places where it still is meant to matter are places where it really does matter. And so to change the definition of sex changes what it means to have a single sex space, for example. Or it changes what it means if a woman who has been raped asks for uh, another woman to carry out the forensic exam. Well, what she probably means is another female person, a person that she can see as female. But what if it's somebody who feels they're female? but isn't actually female, objectively. And so I just started to, um, you know, to, to mull this over. And in the end, I ended up writing a whole book about it. And as I say, at the very beginning, like the first sentence of the book is, uh, this is a book about an idea, one that seems simple, but has far reaching consequences. And so the whole book is kind of a book length explanation of what happens when you start from the premise that what makes you a man or a woman, or indeed neither non-binary, is something that you say rather than something that other people can see by looking at you and just judging which sex you are. And how, how would you say this has become a complicated conversation? What, what has it that's brought it to be quite you know, challenging? I, I know that most people that I would speak to, if I were to ask that simple question about biology, I think most of us would say, well, my education um, and my experience tells me that there are, you know, simple markers that that, that advise us of um, or demonstrate, uh, in a statistical sense, in a in a um, uh, in a biological sense, and, and and so on. Why has this become challenged? I mean, it's such a good question. And again, I, I felt I had to write a book to answer it because that is the first question people ask is, you know, why this? Why now? I mean, most of us will have had the experience that we pretty much never are confused about what sex another person is. Like you might be briefly confused if you saw someone out of the corner of your eye or in the dark or, you know, in a shadow or just for one second. But then they move or they say something or they turn and you see a different angle on them and straight away you can tell whether they're a man or a woman. And, you know, that isn't surprising when you think about the fact that we need to know what sex people are in order to reproduce, but also to keep us safe. So both men and women are very good at recognising if somebody else is male, like sex recognition is actually male recognition. 
because for a man, an, another man is a potential enemy, like somebody you could fight with. And for a woman, a man is a potential predator or attacker. And of course, most men aren't like that at all, but that's not how risk assessment works. Risk assessment is very hair trigger and, you know, works on works on stereotypes, really. Like you, you know, if a woman's walking alone at night, she'll be not, she won't be thinking to herself, oh, most men aren't rapists. She'll be thinking, I'd re- I really don't like this man following me down the street. Mm-hmm. So yes, all of us do know what sex other people are. And yet it turns out that there are, you know, a small but non-zero number of people who are very uncomfortable with their sex. And that's a phenomenon that has always existed, but very, 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 very rare. And it's mostly been um, boys who are, you know, so gender nonconforming that other men treat them so badly, like, in a, you know, in, in societies that are very homophobic, little boys or men who are very effeminate get treated extremely badly. And some of those boys and men will come to the conclusion they were meant to be women. And of course, like women in more traditional societies have often found that the role of being a woman chafes, that it's, you know, you're not allowed to own property or you're married off or something like that. But nobody's ever been very concerned about those women saying, well, you know, I'd like the privileges of men, thanks. Like nobody has ever thought of that as gender dysphoria. They just think, oh, well, you know, they're women. They don't deserve those things, which is interesting. And then, you know, it's basically... You know, this is a phenomenon that happens that people feel very uncomfortable with their sex, a few people. But it's become really enormously more common in the last 10 years. And I think a large part of that is that the idea is suggest sold. Like it was just like I I did a, a podcast recently. It's two trans men. So two women who identify as men are the hosts. And the first question they said to me is, why aren't you trans? And I, I mean, they're two really nice people. I re- they're both called Aaron. I really like them. And, you know, I follow them both on Twitter and think they're really interesting people. And I think they were hoping to kind of catch me out. And I said, well, you know, I'm not trans because I'm too old. Like, this never occurred to me. This just wasn't a thing when I was a child. And now children are taught that everybody has a gender identity and that if your gender identity doesn't match your sex, you're trans. And they're encouraged to think about this. And we all know when you're encouraged to ruminate about something, you may create the idea, in fact, So we've turned it from being hyper rare, the sort of thing that most people would never meet a trans identified person in their whole lives into something that really most classrooms in most schools in Western countries will have a trans child in them. And that's a, you know, that's a factor of that's gone up like three orders of magnitude, at least. Mm. Yeah. So now we suggest sell it. Yeah. Is is there uh, obviously you being, you know, uh, uh, previously, in the world of mathematics and a statistician, and and th- therefore you can read um, research in a in a better way. Is there statistics that that demonstrate that that the younger population has been more, um, I suppose, influenced um, by this exposure versus older persons, or, or how does it play out in 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 the stats? It's a really good question. Um, people often think when they haven't, uh, you know, they haven't done any work with statistics that we we kind of know everything. Like you get used to reading, oh, one person in a hundred does such and such, and unless you ever work with statistics, you probably don't stop and think like, how do they know that? It's actually very very hard to find out how many of certain sorts of people do things or have things or earn a certain amount or whatever. And in particular, when you've got a very vague definition of your group. So there is no strong or clear definition of what it is to be trans. Like basically, if you say you're trans, you're trans. 
but no government is tracking that. Like the government tracks what sex everybody is. It registers people's sex at birth and your records right through school are going to say that and so on. But nobody's writing down who identifies as trans. And in fact, people can identify as trans and then stop identifying as trans. Mm. So that makes it really hard to answer the how many type questions. And you have to look at other um, indicators. So, for example, and the clinic here in the UK that sees children, it opened now. Can I remember the exact date? It was about 1970, like quite a long time ago. But it saw two kids that year and both of them were little boys. And it didn't give either of them medical treatment. It just, you know, did counselling. And now it sees a few thousand a year and has a very long waiting list. And most of those are teenage girls. And that's a group that used to be seen at all. So that's one indicator that the the number of people seen at this particular clinic has gone up by 4,000% and there's an enormous waiting list. And then we did ask a question about gender identity on the census here in the UK, which was held last year. Um, but it was very badly worded. And the findings were that, like the headline finding was that 0.2% of the population population regarded themselves as having a gender identity different from their sex. But the pattern was completely implausible. The biggest other link to saying that you were trans was having very low levels of English. And so the way the question was asked confused people. So quite a lot of people answered, for example, that their sex was female and their gender identity was trans woman, which isn't possible because a trans woman is a male person. Um, so the the borough here in the UK that has the highest a number of trans people, according to the census, is a very poor, a very, very Muslim borough in London. So what it was, it was one in 70 of the people in that borough said that they were trans. And I mean, you know, this is just completely implausible given the population that lives there. So the figures are very poor. Um, I would say that, though, if you talk to teachers... Most teachers will tell you that there's a trans kid, if not in their class, at least in their year group. And in some places, so places like Brighton or Oxford or Cambridge, um, they will tell you that there may be really like about 10% of the kids count themselves as trans. There's a school near me where that's the number on roll who are saying that they're trans identified. And the thing is, it's mostly girls. It's a mixed sex school. So that means that approaching one fifth of the girls say they're not actually girls. So, you know, that's something that, you know, I mean, I'm 55. There wasn't there was no question that any girl of my age in Ireland when I was, you know, 11 to 16 said she wasn't a girl. There probably wasn't a single girl in the whole of Ireland who said that. And now we've got one school where nearly 20 percent of the girls are saying that, you know, uh, it's an enormous increase and it's very much the younger age group. But we don't have the sort of figures that you would have for religion or sexual orientation or the questions that people understand and that have been asked in the census now a few times. Hmm. And what what's the uh, uh, argument for and, 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 and against that? The, I think I've heard you know something around the the idea of, you know, kind of like the contagion effect that yeah. it's popular for for young persons that you know that there's an identity that can be uh provided to a young person to say that they're they're unique they're special um by just announcing it that's been something i've i've, I've heard and read in, in numerous different texts um you know you've done a lot more in-depth um uh, research on this what what are the 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 for and against for these sort of numbers showing up, particularly about yeah. the, the, the young. And, you know, I think we all probably lean towards the young because 
you know, they're vulnerable. Um, you know, we, yes, we, yes. we have a concern um, about that and, and, you know, we'll obviously touch on safe spaces for that affect adults as, as well um, later on, but there's a vulnerability here that, that I think we're all concerned about. And certainly as a psychologist, we, we often talk about, you know, early intervention and care, which, which always really basically says that you know, parenting is really important, you know. Yes. How we set up our communities is is incredibly important. Schooling is important. You know, how do we raise kids? Because we know that that affects you know lifelong projections. Um, so what 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 what's the um, I won't say consensus, but but what what are the the main um, viewpoints? The points the one would yeah yeah. Hmm. Um, so if you look at the children whose gender identity feelings distress them enough that they are referred to uh, medical professionals. And they're very disproportionately groups that are already vulnerable. So there's a, high, a very high rate among children who are in care, like we're not, not being looked after by their parents, and much higher than the population in general. And then the ones who are, you know, so severely gender dysphoric, so so distressed with their gender that they're referred to a specialist clinic. I mean, about a third of them are, are on the autistic spectrum, like have a formal diagnosis of being autistic spectrum. A uh, high rate of the much higher than in the population of the parents separated, of the children self-harming, of them having eating disorders, anxiety, depression, OCD, um, a history of abuse, um, uh, being bullied in school. Like really, you know, you're talking about quite multiply vulnerable children. Now, of course, that's not most trans-identified children. Most trans-identified children never go near a specialist clinic. But the ones who are distressed enough by their gender that they do are children that it's quite easy to see how um, it's possible that maybe the gender is something that's followed on from something else. So a girl who's been abused might think that she wouldn't be abused again if she presented as a boy or a girl whose mother was was abused, like whose, whose father beat her mother, may think that she'll be safer if she's a boy or some, you know, less so now because it's very much the sorts of vulnerabilities that you see on the children, like Clinicians 10 or 20 years ago were very aware um, that a child whose parents had very much wanted a child of the opposite sex were overrepresented in the clinic. And absolutely what you, you're seeing among the boys especially uh, is children who are really very likely to grow up gay. So there's a strong statistical link between being quite, gen you know, quite severe, well not severely, that's the wrong word, but quite notably gender non-conforming when you're little and growing up gay, like lots of gay men will tell you that, you know, they liked their sister's toys and they wanted to dress up as a girl and they didn't like boy things and all their friends were girls and so on. And now that is interpreted in schools and online and just in the popular discourse as meaning that you're really a girl. Whereas that boy would never have had that idea in his head before. And then when he hit puberty, he'd probably have worked out what it was that made him different. Um, the social contagion thing, I mean, there's just no genuine, there's no real doubt that ideas spread because that's kind of what ideas do. I mean, that's the idea of Richard Dawkins' word, the meme, like a meme is like a gene and that it spreads, but it's an idea that does so. So I'm old enough to predate um, the, the memes of self-harm and anorexia and bulimia in girls' schools. You know, th there wasn't much in the way of eating disorders in my class. And then shortly after my age group, um, people started to become very concerned about these uh, eating disorders that were be being seen more in America, actually. And it, with the best intentions, they tried to do education in schools to warn people about the dangers, for example, of making yourself vomit. And what you saw was a huge increase 
in children and girls making themselves vomit, like they had taught children to do that. Mm. And we know that now, we know that eating disorders spread that way. And it's a big challenge for people who treat eating disorders in group or residential therapy because the girls teach each other disordered behavior. Like they compete to be more, you know, more skinny, to eat less, to be, you know, to harm more. They learn bad behaviors about eating from each other. So we know that that's what people do, but in particular, what teenagers and teenage girls more than anybody else do. So, you know, we would expect to see it, in fact, that if there's trans ideation in a group, that it would spread because it's just an idea that's put into each other's heads. And then, you know, one more thing I would say is that we expect teenagers to be trying on identities and trying different things. You're still in flux as a teenager. And to some extent, that's fine. Like I have a friend who's a a psycho, psychoanalyst, you know, psycho, he's a psychiatrist here and he does um, psychotherapy as well with young people. And he says that what he sees is that it's like goth 4.0. So he was a goth himself as a teenager and he he tells you about like, you know, goth turned into emo, turned into whatever. And he says, now these unhappy kids who want to have a style and an identity and to, to really differentiate themselves from the adult world, which they think is very square. I mean, that's what you're meant to think as a teenager. And it is very square. Those kids now find that in trans identification. And to the extent they're just playing around, that's fine. Like what's wrong with playing with your pronouns or your name or your self-presentation? The issues are when that gets concretized in medical treatment that has lifelong effects or mm. when it puts children in danger. So a girl who thinks that she's not really a girl, if she then acts in ways, so for example, by using men's spaces when she's out, that's a dangerous thing to do. Or if she dissociates from her body in ways that make her easier to predate on in online spaces or if she wears a breast binder, which you know can be very bad for the breast tissue and very bad for the ribs and the, the back. Like those are the things that are the problem. If it was just playful and just a, a phase that you were going through of creating your identity, that would be one thing. But the concern is that it, it leads to diso- bodily dissociation, dangerous behaviours, um, medicalized in you know, medicalization and concretization. This is there's so many areas I want to branch off on, but one of the things. Yeah, sorry, I know it, 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 this is what was so interesting. This is why I had to write the book. Like everything <laughs> you th- you find out, you think like, oh, I need to find out more about eating disorders. I need to find out more about, you know, social contagion. And oh wow, what does concretize mean anyway? You know, no, I found that myself totally. Yeah, yeah, like like even even when I think about <clears throat> the, the the contagion effect, the the um, we 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 have this kind of I, I believe there's a. Uh, uh, a rule in the media, um, at least everyone abides by it, which which says do not go out and publicise suicides. You know, and that there's an yeah. understanding from that because I think the statistics say that the moment you do, um, the rates of suicide go up. You That's know, when, when the celebrity yeah. you know um, has taken their life, we go out and say you know their body was found in an apartment and. Um, yeah, you don't you know, tell them and, how you did it sad or and, and why, so, on and so forth. And obviously, all yeah. the adults go, "I think I know what's happened there." Um, yeah, uh, but there's a there's a respect around that as well, uh, which I think you know is, is is socially appropriate as well. But similarly, if if I think about uh, our our regulation body in psychology, APRA, um, here here in Australia, we have really strict guidelines about how we can advertise. So we're not allowed yes. to say things like, "Are you feeling anxious?" 
Because what, yes. what it does is that words are powerful um, and they go and ask people to self-reflect, to look internally and go, how am I feeling? Is there a problem there? And obviously we know that Marketing 101 says exactly that. It says yes. present the problem so that you can then present the solution, which is you know, come and see a psychologist if you're feeling anxious. So the language is really important and and, and that's what, the, I suppose you know how ideas spread, so it does make make sense. But I do want to pick up on when this moves into more the more concrete space because that's that vulnerability. Mm-hmm. I think what what you say so eloquently is it's actually really important for kids to play, you know, to to explore, to try and stretch the boundaries in in anything like like putting aside gender for a moment. With sport, yes. we encourage them to try different things. With obviously food, hey, don't, don't leave the greens yeah. on the side. Just, just taste us, you know. Try an activity, yes. develop a reading, um, you know, passion. Do some art, you know, whatever it is. As parents, we're saying the world is your oyster. Go out and 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 uh, um, you know uh, uh, play, you know, explore, have a look, you know, uh, energize yourself and and, and be adventurous. Um, I'm I'm uh, wanting that for all, for for all kids, but as you say, sometimes when it becomes concrete, there's a question around that. You know, hence why you know, parents don't say, "Okay, you know, son or daughter, you want drum, a drum kit? Let's buy you one straight away," um, because we don't want you know. Baby but, or more than that, you know, um, you you know, you think you want you don't you not you'll never want a child. Let's tie your tubes. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't like as as a parent, you keep things open. You're always trying to keep things open for your child. And I, I do think it's important to think, you know, there are ways of presenting the world to children that are positive, hopeful, open-ended, and that, you know, don't give them unrealistic ideas about what's achievable, but do encourage them to dream. And then there's ways that teach them bad ideas about themselves. Like if you if you were to say to a child, um, you know, you shouldn't try that because you might fail. That would be a very bad way to set the world up for children. I think we do that too much, actually, at the moment. On the other hand, you shouldn't be saying to your child, you know, you can do anything, you know, you can fly, why jump out of a window, you know. So a lot of the time it's in the middle. But when it comes to gender, um, what you should be hopefully saying to children is, um, you know, boys and girls are a bit different. It's Some of the interests are different, but my goodness, it's just statistics. And if you're an unusual boy or an unusual girl, don't let that hold you back. And don't say to yourself, like, that isn't something that a boy should do. Like, I have a son who plays harp. And I could easily mm. have said to him when he said to me when he was six that he wanted to play the harp. Like, if I had said, boys don't play the harp, I think he wouldn't have taken up the harp. Sure. And Absolutely. and and so to me, you know, the, the right way to think about these gendered things, like the harp is a gendered instrument, it's something that girls mostly do, is just to hold it very lightly. And to let children experiment from both sides, you know, not to say that girls have to do the pink things and boys do the blue things or whatever that means for you in your society. Let them both, let them try it out and mm. then accept that probably more boys will do some boyish things and more girls will do girlish things. And that's fine. But what tra- the trans idea does is it says exactly the opposite. It says that you should look and see what your tastes are and from that read back to what sex you are. So what they say is that, you know, your gender identity is something that you will express through your gender expression. And, you know, a girl then ends up being someone who does girly things and a boy is someone who does boy things. 
so to to that ideology, and I mean, I'm sure that somebody who's a trans activist would say I'm wrong on this, but I've looked at the teaching materials and this is what you would take from it if you were a child. You know, that my boy, by saying he wanted to play the harp, was signalling something about his gender identity to himself and to me, which is that, you know, he's heading towards the girl side of things. And if he had wanted to do a load more girl things, which actually he did, um, that that made him a girl in some sense. And we do know that that's how historically children have formed cross-sex gender identities. It starts with the gender nonconformity. So there's a research paper that came out in 2000, 2001, that's a meta-analysis of everything that had been done up to date on children with gender dysphoria, who are mostly boys. And what they concluded was that these boys had been very gender non-conforming first, and they weren't unhappy about that. They were just expressing their tastes. They were saying they wanted to wear their mother's high heels and paint their nails and let their hair grow long and play with dolls. And they liked girls better and sort of instrument they'd like the harp and they didn't want to play rugby. They were the, you know boys like that. And then the reaction of the people around them taught them that that made them wrong, that there mm. was something wrong mm. with them. And so then they started to look around the world and think, gosh, like everything I like is something that's coded for girls. So something's badly wrong with me. And they would feel shame because there's a huge shame in our society still about being a girlish boy, much more than the other way around. And then they would conclude that they were meant to be girls. So that was the way around it happened, the gender nonconformity first and then the gender dysphoria. And if we had been able to just let those little boys be their fabulous little selves, they wouldn't have come to the conclusion that they weren't meant to be boys. Mm. They'd probably have grown up gay, by the way. But I mean, and that's fine. <laughs> About 1% of boys do. Yeah. When we say they would have concluded um, rather than made that judgment, is, is, it, is it that the adults hold more weight in setting no, up No, it's everybody. It's everybody. I mean, everybody. any boy who is like that will tell you that they got bullied. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's much better now, I think, in the right places anyway. Other boys will laugh at you. Like a boy who brings in yeah, a Barbie yeah, doll to school, school yep. other boys will laugh. Even if the teachers say don't. Like my, I, I have I have two sons. One is gay and one is straight. And the older boy, who's the straight one, when he went to school on his first week when he was four, I don't know, one of the other boys asked him what, what his favourite colour was. And he said, oh, pink and purple, they're my favourite colours. And that boy said, oh, they're girl colours. And that evening, my son said, um, I don't like people, pink and purple anymore. And I mm -hmm. tried my hardest. I said, oh, no, all colours are for everybody, darling. And no, no, he learned that these were girl colours and he didn't want them. <laughs> so, yeah. so, you know, the, the, the children pick these cues up hugely. Um, and then and then they they internalise shame in particular. So I suppose this is a long winded way of me saying that, um, you know, we want our children to experiment and we want them to feel that everything's open to them and not to concretize things that are maybe passing phases or just part of developing a personality and an identity. But the message that your choices and tastes should reflect back on who it is that you are, that's not that does not seem to me to be a good message. It does not psychologically sound either. Um, like no, it isn't. But that is, if you read, hmm. if you pick up the books that, that um, the trans lobby groups recommend for schools, they will be, they, they, it's incredible the weight they put on clothing choices, toy choices. Like there's one where a teddy bear takes off his bow tie and he puts the bow in his hair and that's how he turns into a girl. Um, the book I Am Jazz, which is about um, poor Jazz Jennings, uh, who's, who's a boy who was transitioned socially at age six 
and went through gender surgery and everything and now lives as a, as a woman, young woman, Jazz Jennings, who's not a happy person. Uh, this, you know, this is somebody who's on antidepressants and has really struggled with mental health. But anyway, Jazz wrote a book, well, co-wrote a book um, for children called I Am Jazz. And it says, you know, I, I was a boy, I, I was a girl trapped in a boy's body. And I knew that because I wanted to be a mermaid. I like pink. I liked dolls. I wanted to play football, which, of course, in America, soccer is a girl's game. You hear that's a boy's game. And it just lists behaviours that, you know, your average effeminate little gay boy is like that. And so in a different society or 20 years earlier, none of this would have meant that jazz was actually a girl in a boy's body. And that child would just have grown up to be a, you know, almost certainly a gay man. And if you have to choose between being a gay man, fully healthy, not reliant on medication, not having undergone surgery, and not having a lifetime of basically, you know, having to negotiate the fact that other people don't necessarily think you are what you say you are. You know, the fact is, you know, Jazz Jennings is a male person. That's just a fact. And that is sometimes consequential for other people. Uh, if you had to choose between being a gay boy and a child who is sterile, and Jazz's Jennings um, doctors have said that Jazz does not have normal sexual function because Jazz was put on puberty blockers very young and then on cross-sex hormones very young too. So Jazz's genitals didn't grow fully. I mean, all of this is, this isn't me being prurient here. This was all on reality TV. It's all been talked about by Jazz and by Jazz's family on television. You can watch the episodes. You know, this is a child who's been through multiple operations and is not going to be able to have a child, doesn't have normal sexual function, um, is dependent on, on um, artificial hormones. You know, there are two versions of the future and one of them is just clearly better than the other, which is the let this kid just be themselves and grow up to be gay, which is what probably Jazz would have done. So it's the opposite to me of playful, exploratory, uh, open-ended, mm. liberal, um, progressive. It, it's put this child back in a box. It's like saying, you know, this child is, is too effeminate to be allowed to be a boy. So, you know, so jazz must be put into the pink box because jazz doesn't fit in the blue box. Mm. There's so much in, in in this space that becomes concerning once it becomes concretized as, as, as you. Yes. As you, you know, mentioned that. Uh, when we go down that medical side, particularly with young people, um, from reading your 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 book and other texts, that there's very real danger of taking the lead of a child or maybe even adults. I, I think probably rightly so, pointing this at the at the adults and saying that the adults are allowing and consenting for medical treatments that can make their children sterile. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, and I don't think anyone uh, intended that when it started. Like people have this idea that what we do with children is we just don't do anything irreversible. But the thing is that that often means that you've got quite a small child. Like in America, it's not uncommon now for a child of three, four, five to be counted as a trans child. Now, seriously, a, th a three-year-old who says I'm really a boy or I'm really a girl. Like, I, I mean, I'm not kidding. One of my kids was a train at that age. Like from age two to four, that child was a train. Everything was everything was train. And I mean, I didn't do anything about it. I just played along when it was fun. And, you sure. know, when the train was irritating, when the boy needed to go to bed or eat dinner or something, we stopped the train game, you know. And so it, like taking a child of that age is words seriously enough to say, all right, then I'll change your name. I'll change your pronouns. I'll tell people you're really a girl. Like people think that that's 
not irreversible, so it's fine. But it's actually a very major psychological intervention Mm. because a child of that age doesn't actually know what a boy or a girl is. Like at age three or four, children think it is about your name and your hair and your clothes. And it's more like sort of five, six and maybe even seven that children understand that it's about the body and that if you change the clothes and the hair, the child does not change sex. So some of these children are being presented as members of the opposite sex before they even know what that actually means. And then that child sails along and it's all fine because, you know, they're happy. They they have what they want. They're presented as the sex that they thought they preferred. Um, nobody's arguing about it because you can basically pass prepubescent children usually. But puberty's coming. And what are you to do if you've been calling your boy a girl from age three and now that boy's 11? Suddenly say, now we have to decide, are we going to do the irreversible things? Well, obviously you decided that eight years ago, but you didn't know you were deciding that. You thought you were just going along with it. You were just being child-led, like child-led parenting. Yeah, so so it's the road to hell is paved with good intentions. You start it thinking that this isn't this isn't a big deal. Like the gender clinics say that families bring children in already socially transitioned now. And that used to happen that people used to come in with children who are somewhat older, like often late, you know, just before puberty or in early puberty. And these kids were distressed by puberty. But now kids come into them asking, the families are asking for puberty blockers and that child has been presented as a member of the opposite sex for years and years already. Mm. And there's not a lot the clinic can do then, like because it would actually be incredibly distressing to say, you know, you thought you were a girl for the last six years and now your voice is going to break and you're going to grow facial hair and shoot up and be six foot two, you know? I mean, everything that, parents are being told on this by the mainstream is just wrong mm. they're being misled really horribly there's this there's this concept in in a therapy that i work with um uh, that i'm incredibly passionate about um in the act world acceptance and commitment therapy which is psychological flexibility and it really talks about yes. rigid ideas versus flexible ideas and holding things lightly and then when you use the word yes concrete concrete um you know concepts or you know making them concrete that is quite concerning um, from a psychological standpoint because <clears throat> we know that you know pain and suffering is inevitable but we're trying to we're trying to reduce it you know that, that that's what psychology stands for it says you know the way that you relate with life yourself the ideas that you have the body that you're in Etc. Um, it's your relationship with those things, and then the thoughts and the sensations that causes you distress. And the more we make them concrete, yes. the higher the likelihood of of distress. You know, so even if I really tightly hold on to a concept that I'm I'm a psychologist, that's my role, that's my identity, that's who I am, that that that's my only uh, 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 value. Should something happen in my life where I can't practice yeah. something, an accident or something, yes. I become incredibly vulnerable or heaven yes. forbid I retire at some point, you know, that yes. would be a highly depressing time because then I just become a washed up nobody. You know, I've, I've lost, you know, the, 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 the flexibility of having a broad identity, you know, and, and, and in there is the value. And so when we talk about, you know, the, the, uh, you know, a concrete or strong viewpoint um, that it, that is very rigid, very concerning um, because mm. treatment in therapy is, is is so much about psychological flexibility and and 
uh, endorsing that in many areas and and and, and finding quite, finding quite ways to understand things that are open ended as well. So, like you know, if a child says to a parent, um, you know, I think I was meant to be a girl, or I feel like I'm much more like a girl than a boy. Like, there's so many different ways you can react to that. You know, you can ridicule the child, or you can say, um, you know, there's something wrong with you. Like, there's all sorts of bad things that you could do. But there's, you know, to be to do a good thing doesn't mean that you have to go along with it necessarily. Like, you can say to the child, oh, that's really interesting. What does it mean to you to feel like a girl? Or, huh, what made you think that, do you think? Or, hmm. Right. I've never really noticed that myself. I mean, you know, human beings can't change sex, but of course, people feel all sorts of different things, you know, just in a more lighthearted, conversational. This doesn't have to lead us anywhere. I'm interested mm. in what you're saying. I wonder what that means to you, or what it feels like. Or if a child says, uh, you know, I feel I really, truly hate my female body. Like I wake up every morning and I'm obsessed with the fact that I'm growing breasts and this makes me feel terrible. Like you can say, oh, that's so, that must be really difficult for you. Tell me mm. more, you know, mm. as opposed to, gosh, we must try and get rid of them. You must be, you're the sort of person who isn't meant to have breasts, you know. It just strikes me as like, there's this, I'm sure you've come across this, like Jonathan Haidt, um, he has this concept that we're teaching anti-CBT, that we're teaching children exactly the opposite of what we should be teaching them to make people, have, you've probably talked about this before on your show. Okay, so for, so for people who haven't. It, it's such <laughs> a big, it's such a big yeah, uh, topic, at least for for me, that that the way that we are leaning into people's feelings and being feeling driven is, yes. is incredibly problematic. Um, now, and I think this is where some of the the, the 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 shift has come from is that the more compassionate, the more kind, the more thoughtful mm. we are, we 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 tend to kind of lean into being uh, understanding. Um, which is great, but unfortunately, that then leads with we therefore cannot have discomfort and uh, yes. any 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 sort of pain. And you know, I I often talk about you know we use symptoms as this terminology in psychology, and now a nightmare is a symptom um, rather than I like to use the word an unwanted dream. I mean, I'll tell you what, in my yeah, life, yeah, yeah, so much of my life is unwanted. You know, like I, I don't want <laughs> to have to come into work. You know that that's yeah. not a nightmare. Do the washing up, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's an unwanted thing. But at the same time, I actually do want it also because I want a clean home. And so, exactly, that is a huge topic that I think is making us less resilient because there's there's a there's an issue. For example, if a child has been told that they are uh the opposite sex but the world does not care for that mm. and it says this toilet because there are six cubicles in there uh you're not allowed to go into um if that becomes something that's rigid and and, and the relationship to that it could be distressing um that becomes a problem versus there are times where if there's one toilet and it's it's a, a single cubicle it just says toilet. It's not male or female. Yeah, no one yeah. cares. And, and as a matter of fact, this is how we we do large events. We we bring in these portaloos. Um, yes, it, it, it's you know it's a free for all. All the men and women just line up, and whichever door opens up and someone's left, you just walk in, and you use it. Why? Because it's a small little cubicle with 
no concern around danger. You know, there's 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 no threat and privacy. Yeah, and, pri- and privacy. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, they're, they're really important um, uh, uh, aspects, but you just can't do that. I mean, you know, even at our my workplace, uh, there is an area before the cubicles that that you know you, you can't share that space. It's not where yes. we are in society, and and unfortunately, you know, maybe that's also about we have to also plan our communities are for for the lowest common denominator of you know people who are violent or people who are yeah predatory you know that hence why we have yeah. toilets that are segregated if everyone was really respectful then the world would be different but that's an that's an ideology you know we we don't live yeah. in that world we have jails for certain people a very small minority um, but we have to kind of plan in that way too and that's one of the things yeah. that I think maybe we could speak about as well about whether it's sport, whether it's, you know, changing rooms, um, you know, these are concerning mm-hmm. things. And I know that, you know, uh, uh, they're important topics about uh, what this means. Yeah. I mean, one of my issues with telling, like suggest selling trans identities to children is that it is an inherently vulnerable identity because it requires other people to, to accept um, a, a sort of a fiction. And, and, you know, that can be lovely. Like we we accept fictions when we go to the theatre and there's an immersive fiction that everybody's involved in. And it could be that an adult who has suffered for a long time with gender dysphoria may, may seek to have all the adults around them support them in, in, you know, in this new identity. And that could be fine. Like that could be the best solution for that person. But it's not an ideal situation because it does require other people to suspend their disbelief to some some extent. Uh, extent so if you say to children like everybody just works out whether they're really boys or girls and it's by your feelings any kid who accepts that and believes it and then asserts a trans identity is doing something that they are going to rub up against other people a lot more than they would if they weren't doing it and they may experience that as other people being hateful or being mean or being prejudiced you know, so a boy who wants to go into girl spaces or wants to play sport with the girls, if the girls say, well, look, you know, my rights actually require you not to do that. That boy has been sold an idea that is now not being delivered on. He's been made a promise that society is not now fulfilling. And he mm. may experience that as really hostile and hurtful and hateful. And I have a lot of sympathy with him, especially if he's still a child, because he's been told it would be OK and it's not OK. So it'd be better upfront to be honest and to say, you know, people can't change sex and there really isn't anything we can do to force everybody else to pretend that you've changed sex. Mm. You know, some people really will never go along with that. Um, And, you know, they're not mean people. They're thinking about their own lives. So if you are a man who wants to use women's spaces and, you know, you could be the loveliest, kindest, sweetest man in the world. You know, there could be not a bad impulse in you at all. The fact is that some of the women in those spaces will have been raped. They'll have experienced domestic abuse. They will be from religions where it is not acceptable for them to be in certain sorts of spaces with men. And this man just can't go into those spaces without trampling on those women's rights. And when those women say that to him, I'm sure it feels very hurtful and it feels very personal because they're saying something about his identity. So it's an inherently fragile identity. It's it's an identity that sets you up to be in conflict with Mm. other people because it's an identity that's in conflict with reality. And it would be better 
for as many people as possible who go through these feelings to find a way to accommodate themselves to reality and to understanding that other people have perceptions and rights. But that's not the way it's been approached in clinical settings by doctors and gender um, clinics, but also by teachers in recent years. You know, they've presented it as a, as a civil or human right to be able to impose your gender identity on other people. And, you know, this is just setting people up for conflict and for feeling fragile. So people will feel like there's been a big increase in reported hate crimes here in the UK. And I think this is a phenomenon worldwide. And when you actually look at, when you drill down, what it is, is it's misgendering. It's people referring to somebody according to their sex rather than their state of gender identity. But we can tell what sex other people are and we're not trying to be mean. Like even if you've been told that a man identifies as a woman, it's easy to forget it. And then to say he or to call him a man, sure. you know, he feels it's hurtful. He's been told that, that that's not something that people will do. He, in fact, he's told it's hateful, worse than hurtful. But people aren't trying to be mean to him. They can just see it's a man. Hmm. So, yeah, it's a creation of a particularly fragile identity that requires other people's validation. And that strikes me as a very stupid thing to do, to actually encourage people to do something that makes them fragile. It's so psychologically incongruent with what the research tells us. So, I, you know, yes. we, we we can understand that feelings, you know, your feelings are your experience, and they are real feelings. No one can go out and say what you're feeling is 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 not true, right? You are feeling that. Yes, but we exactly. do need to question your thoughts because thoughts yeah. and feelings team up together, right? And so we we have this scenario of, for example, someone who might be suffering from. Uh, 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 let's say um, anorexia nervosa or, or bulimia, they might feel like they are fat and ugly and disgusting. And they might actually feel awful while they're eating something. And it can get to a point of any calorie. So an apple yeah. can feel disgusting that it, that their, you know, um, body is growing and it's, and, and it's, and it's, it, it's, it, it feels in a disgusting way as though you and I might, you know, if we we're going to touch feces or something that 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 that, that it's frightening, right. it creates a whole sense of anxiety and heart racing and so on. It's it, it, it's terrifying, in, in 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 fact, for some. But we can't go out and say the thoughts that sometimes go along with those feelings are to be honoured. You know, so we can't say let's yes. honour those those thoughts, and so we will. Um, you know, create a world and a medical system and a world that 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 helps you starve yourself to death as a mm -hmm. young person. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we 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 actually have an intervention at that, that at a critical level, which says we're going to hospitalise this person. And unfortunately, well, my apologies. Fortunately, you know, there there are some powers that can come into effect where we can force feed. We can we can place mm -hmm. tubes into young people to say we're going to put nutrients into your body so you can start to think more clearly. You know, you can't do psychotherapy um, when someone is, you know, in starvation mode and, and and they're completely consumed by that. And so that's a human way and a humane and a, and a compassionate way to respond to a young person who is obviously quite unwell if they're at those late, late stages um, or even in the early stages we, we need to understand that so um it, it's really baffling that we are going against what psychology is fought for 
Um, yes. Uh, it's so anti-developmental thinking. You know, yeah. it goes back to a pre-developmental psychology way of looking at the world that, you know, that people just have characteristics, that humans just are certain types of people, that men are one way, women are another way. You know, if you were, you know, if you had racial ideas, if we're going back far enough, you might think that certain races had certain characteristics. And then, you know, all of that was really abandoned and, and psychologists thought of human beings as people who develop, who who create themselves, who co-create themselves in the society that they're in. And now we've just essentialized something about people again and said that people have gender identities. You're born with it. Uh, you know it innately, like all you've got to do is self-examine. I mean, again, I really have a problem with this suggestion that children should self-examine because I just think it encourages rumination. Like if you've got a kid who's already, like, you know, a child who's been aggrieved or something like that, you know, needs family therapy, somebody who really knows how, what they're doing can support them to be thinking, you know, in a way that's not counterproductive. But like large scale telling all the children in the school that they must think about their gender identities and self-examine, terrible idea, absolutely dreadful. And it just puts ideas into people's heads, makes them insecure. And, um, you know, it, people don't don't come with gender identities installed. We just don't. We just aren't like that. Um, you know, to the extent that people grow up to have what you might call a gender identity, it's developed. You know, it comes in the society that they're in from their life experiences, from things they thought and felt and did. And yet we're back to, you know, essentialized people come with a little pink or blue switch in their brains and and it just makes no sense to me and I, I i find it very deeply depressing that most of the um professional organizations in medicine and the caring professions and the psychological professions have all really adopted desperately unscientific and really contradictory approaches to this you know have signed up to memorandum memorandums of understanding or to support bans on conversion therapy when conversion therapy is being defined as just exploratory ethical therapy. And really on the basis of shoddy or no evidence or indeed contrary evidence, like the evidence is that this doesn't help children and yet people are saying it does. It's really, it's, it's really baffling as a, as a psychologist as well, where even when there are terms like gender affirming care versus yeah. What we do in the whole of psychology is, is, is we do emotion affirming or, or feeling affirming, which is called validation. Yes. And, and, and so it, I hear uh, what you're saying. I yeah, understand. At, at the very yeah. base of, of you know, uh, appointments is, is immediate validation of, you know, what that, that must feel quite, quite difficult for you. I can see that yes. you're. You know, um, finding that you know painful. You know, tell me more. We listen. We're non-judgmental, but we don't affirm necessarily the ideas. As a matter of fact, we're supposed to remain impartial. You know, so we don't go out and say, "Oh, yeah, you know, your partner sounds awful." You know, they're a yeah. they're a horrible, yeah. horrible. You know, piece of work. I tell you what. You know, <laughs> we don't do that. We, we we say it sounds like it's difficult to be in that relationship. You know that. That, that that's yes. what's expressing, you know, you know, what's that like? And you know, at the same time, we probably want to ask them, you know, what is it that keeps you in that relationship? What are some of the yeah. you know things that come from that? You know, how did you fall in love? You know, what what were yes. those bonding things? You know, if if you were to to you know consider which you know you're expressing to to leave 
you know, what are your fears and worries and, you know, um, what, 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 what is going on for you, you know, with, with all of these thoughts and emotions running. This is just called affirming someone's experience, but we have to be careful not to affirm the story because, you know, I think we all mm. did with young people. A friend came in and said, oh, you know, I'm having problems with my partner and we're like, Oh, they're awful. They're terrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah. guess what? You know, next week they're they're back on. You know, it's like oh, and now you're not now you're right? not friends anymore because you've just you know <laughs> best to say nothing, yeah. right? I mean, and yeah. and that's socially and cognitively sound as well because we go through different emotions, you know. And yes. I, I have a concern about gender affirming, kind of saying we're going to affirm that what you say, your thoughts, um, are. To be followed um, because it's the same scenario whether it's you know uh, uh, eating disorders whether it's you know obsessive compulsive whether it's you know social phobia um, there's there's so many things that um, it, 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 it's not psychologically sound to 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 affirm the thought as we're you know even in CBT we're talking about thought challenging uh, to, to yes you know, in, in act we might call it about diffusion and, and and you know observing the thought and asking whether it's helpful or not or um, looking at the content versus um uh the process and and so on but uh it's shifted from at least this conversation seems like it's shifted away from what I would say psychologically sound and then it's concerning that if completely professional completely. bodies are following that as well which is, yeah. is baffling. I mean, I think that there's a very bad force analogy that, that is driving a lot of it, and that is the idea that to be trans is to be like gay. Um, so, I mean, as you know, the psychological professions had a terrible history of mm. regarding being gay as having a psychological disorder and, you know, doing some really horrific things that are now universally recognised as totally unethical. So I'm sure your listeners know this, but in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, you know, they, they used aversion therapy to try to turn people off what was naturally sexy for them, like, you know, pornography of the same sex type thing. Um, you know, maybe uh, making them take horrible things to make them vomit while looking at pictures of attractive people of the same sex or give them electric shocks and try to associate nice things with looking at, um, you know, beautiful images of the opposite sex. And I mean, all you can do here is make people very unhappy. You can't you can't change the sexual orientation, but you can make them deeply, deeply unhappy about themselves. And so that's now recognized as having been a real human rights abuse. And now people think, well, if being trans is like being gay, then trying to change somebody's gender identity is like trying to change their sexual orientation. But I just it is a false analogy in so many ways. And, you know, one of the difficulties is that the false analogy is very appealing because you can say it so quickly. You can say, you know, conversion therapy for sexual orientation or gender identity. And, you know, people think they understand. But a, a gender identity, like people don't, most people don't think of themselves as having a gender identity, but they do think of themselves as having a sexual orientation. You know, they know that they mostly or only like somebody of the same sex or the opposite sex. Most of us just think that we are the sex that we are. We don't build up a, an identity around that in our heads. And the people who do, it's only really the people who think that they have a gender identity that's different from their sex. And most people who think that stop thinking it after a while, especially if it happens in childhood. So a child who thinks I was meant to be a boy or I was meant to be a girl is unlikely to grow up to be an adult who still thinks that. 
every study has shown a majority of people who think that stop thinking it. And the figures that the best, the best studies suggest 80 or 90% of them stop. So it's, and that's just not true for sexual orientation. You know, very, very few people really change their sexual orientation, certainly not 80 or 90% of people. Um, and then it's also just not the same sort of thing. Like di different people mean very different things by gender identity. So there's not anything very much in common between a five-year-old boy who's been teased and shamed for being, you know, for liking dolls and pink and a teenage girl who has seen her father rape and beat her mother and has decided that to be female, you know, embodied in a female body is a very dangerous thing. And a middle-aged man who has been cross-dressing for erotic purposes since he was a teenager and has become really very fixated on the female identity that he's created, that is his erotic fixation. Those are just three incredibly different phenomena. And I'm not trying to devalidate any of them. I'm just saying that to say, to explain them by saying these people have gender identities that don't match their sex is such a dumb thing to say. And each of them needs something different and um, you know, how they can live in the world is different. How likely they are to keep feeling like that is different. Like the girl needs support. She probably needs, you know, family uh, change in her family situation, but, you know, she needs support to, to understand that it can be good to be a woman. It can be a strong thing and she can be safe. And the boy needs people around him who understand that there's nothing wrong with being an effeminate boy. And who know in the back of their mind, this is probably going to grow up to be a gay boy. So let's make sure that we don't have homophobes around here. And the man, well, you know, like some men really, that is their erotic interest, but they can't come into women's spaces because it's too intrusive on women. So they're just three incredibly different scenarios. Mm. And yet they're talked about as if they're one thing, gender identity, and you must affirm it. It's, it, 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 this is where the nuance is lost, where, you know, in, in psychology, the context is important. If, if someone loses a loved one, yes. we differentiate that using different language about whether someone is depressed, which is what they look like. They certainly look that way uh, versus if they're going through grief, which yes. gives the context. And so if we, if we yes. provide the context, we understand why someone's feeling a certain way. And so they're, they're separated things. Interestingly, though, I think we do this in other areas and, and, and this, you know, uh, uh, can become, you know, a, a, a little controversial as well, where we might have think terms like postnatal depression. Mm. Look at the context of you know, a no uh, sleep, a, a new young, you know, uh, yeah. mum, you know, with the lack of sleep and obviously change in social, you know, status and standing and opportunities, and obviously their diet changes removing sleep on an ongoing basis, not just as a single yeah. evening, but, you know, for, for months uh, of, of, of that immense change, no longer going out and working or, or school or whatever it is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There's infinite things I could go out and say. A lot of us would, would say, well, it sounds probably reasonable that they're feeling a bit lousy. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and I mean, what the intervention that. that's needed is help her to get some sleep, yeah. tidy up the house saying, for her. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like we say it's a disorder to feel lousy as a young mum. Like, like you shouldn't yeah. feel like no yeah. one in the population should have that. Versus saying, 
yeah, that's pretty reasonable. It's pretty normal. Um, and let's let's validate that and support that and, and rally around and help young mums and young dads. Uh, it's yes. a hard time. Yeah, we and all parents kind of get that. So we need the context. And I think that's what you're 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 saying. And and I think psychology in general needs to look at context as a describer of human experience. And and for some, the context of going to work every day is depressing. You know, where where most of your life is sucked up in an eight hours a day of something that you don't want to do, you know, that that's not giving you that, that. that's a fairly reasonable context to understand why it might why you might feel lousy. You know, it's probably got many other features like you know not eating well, staying up late, maybe drinking, and so on and so forth. But I think we need to spend more time in the context and and what you're describing. You know, three year old's context or six year old's context is very different to a to an adolescent. Um, it's very different depending on what the family signals are or the school signals or you know the 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 family home um, environment versus what an adult might look like, which you know is all through different stages as well. And so I think we need a more nuanced and and and, and open conversation. Um, no different to if we're talking about using anything in a concrete way. We need to kind of understand what are the pros and cons. Like where 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 are the it's, it's interesting. Where's, where's it going to fall apart? Yeah, it's interesting what you're saying that, you know, like everything else, because one of the things I find myself saying over and over again to people is that I wish that they would treat this idea that people have gender identities or that people can be trans and do whatever they would do with anything else. So I want journalists to examine this the same way that they do journalism on anything else, academics to treat it the same way as they would treat any other idea. And if everybody just did their job with their normal professional standards on this, we would not be where we are. But my, you know, my initial experience and one of the reasons that I did get very caught up on this topic was I was watching journalism treat this one topic as off bounds. But there was literally nothing else that you were um, that was meant to be taboo in the same way. You know, and I said I was writing about this. People were like, oh, you know, you're you're not valid. You know, you're you're saying that trans people aren't valid or you're, um, you know, you can't examine the question of whether a trans woman, meaning a man who identifies as a woman, is a woman. And um, because that's uh, that's, you know, to to literally erase their existence. Like, I mean, I've written about all sorts like, you know, political corruption or big business or pedof- and I wrote about pedophilia, you know, and it wasn't treated like this. So just it, I just wanted to be able to do journalism the same way that I did in everything else. You know, ring people who knew something about it, ask them good faith questions in ordinary language, get the best answers I could, write the best article I could, move on. And that was meant to be something that people complained and tried. Mm. They tried to get me to lose my job. And then academics, the same. You know, this is a big idea to say, you know, there's a big intervention in education and a big intervention in society to say that anything that's single sex must be divided according to what people say they are rather than what they actually are. Like that's mm. the sort of thing that sociologists and statisticians, um, you know, people who look at women's rights, all of these people should immediately have gone, oh, let's study that using our normal tools of our trade. Doctors, the, the caring professions, the psychological professions, statisticians, um, everybody should have been, educators, everyone should just have used their normal professional tools to do their normal work. And yet absolutely everybody hasn't. They've treated this like it's one thing that's different from everything else. And I think some of that's fear 
people know that if you talk about this, mm. you know, you get into trouble, you get piled on online, people complain and try and get you out of your job. And some people I know have lost their jobs because of talking about this in just an ordinary evidence-based way. And it's people don't want to lose their jobs. But, yeah, the moment we lose, lose, you know, the capacity to have the conversation, it, it becomes a problem because we don't understand it. So, you know, even something, you know, obviously a hard topic talking about, about pedophilia, if we try and understand it, and, and I'll, I'll do a yes. novice approach at it, but that is someone who has a sexual arousal toward minors. And we shouldn't necessarily say that's good or bad, right or wrong. What we say is you can't act on that urge. We, 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 yes, we exactly. say that's, that's something we call out of bounds. So whether you have that inherently in you, whether it's something that you've learned, whether this is a, a biological thing, it actually doesn't matter. What matters is that we have these laws which say you are not allowed to act in that way. Um, and then you can seek treatment for that. No one's going out and saying, you know, a psychologist are mandated to to say, you know, to the police and the police will race over and, and say that, you know, someone's come in and they've said, I have these urges, um, these, these desires, it's a, you know, sexual arousal towards young people. The questions are, are you acting on it? You know, are you going out and doing anything? And, and you know, do you have a plan to do so? And if the answer is no to all of those, then we can be compassionate and say, my goodness, imagine being in, in the shoes of someone who has a sexual urge, which is a very strong urge, and you can never mm -hmm. go out and follow it. Yeah. You're not yeah. allowed to act on it. And then it. you can yeah. ask yourself, you know, where does this come from? And the reason that you want to know is can you help? Yeah, absolutely. You know, is this I mean, somebody who's... How do we going reduce... to have to be monitored yeah. or is it somebody who could be suffering? Yeah. 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 And, and, and other Rather people say than... they're, they're suffering and other people suffering. So you, know, you want to understand things because you want to know, like the more you know about a phenomenon, the more likely you are to be able to help people to cope with it or to stop bad things from happening. Yes. And, 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 you know, that means that you have to talk about very uncomfortable things because, I mean, you know, we don't really want to get derailed onto the the, the paedophilia thing, but actually most people who offend against children aren't paedophiles um, okay. because, I mean, a, a child is anyone under 16. So the children who are most at risk are the 13, 14, 15-year-olds who are already, you know, the sort of person you, you don't have to be attracted to prepubescent bodies to um, to abuse a 13, 14-year-old girl. Like That's likely to be a man whose impulses are normal but who lacks the morals to understand that you don't do these things with under 16s and who maybe is predating on girls who are vulnerable because they're less knowledgeable and so on. So straight away, you're starting to understand, you know, who's at risk, how do we help them? And if you misunderstand it, then you prescribe the wrong, um, the wrong policies. And like you think that it's about that. the urges of the man. Well, yes. most men who abuse against children don't have any unusual urges. Sorry to jump They're in. just predators. Yeah, that that see that that nuance is profound, right? Right, like, and that's that, the first thing when you. I, I can tell you when I wrote about paedophilia, every person I, I called said, "Can I stop you and check that you understand what a paedophile is? And do you know that most people who offend against children aren't paedophiles?" First time I said, "Wow, tell me more." Second time I was like, "Yes, I've got that. Let's go." So yeah, it's the first thing everybody has to be told on it. Yeah, yeah, it's a, and and that's what conversation should should be. You know that your book you know, highlights these, these, these spaces and, and you know, I, I think doesn't undermine 
uh, you know, anyone in the population, it, it's saying, what happens if we abandon um, the, the, these these uh, uh, ideas of of flexibility um, and trying to understand things in 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 a way that is still respectful and 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 that's that's to me what's what's lovely it's a compassionate conversation it's a compassionate view of not trying to point the finger and be awful but rather say let's try and understand this you know whether it's you know and you know, we'll move off off off, off the, the topic of pedophilia but it, whether it's obsessive compulsive disorder whether it's you know postnatal depression as, as we've said well you know people can have a, a post i've just broken up with my girlfriend depression you know but, but we don't call that yes. we we just say no. <laughs> gosh you're going through a hard time because you know your heart's been broken we, we give a different terminology um, yes and obviously it becomes more and more de- destructive to that person's life the longer it goes on so if, if they haven't found a way around that after three months six months we rally more and we say you know let's let, let's help you more because i can see you really do find that hard and you're grieving more about that loss that's what this conversation to me is about is is not trying to terrorize or or, or be awful or, or um be insensitive but, but rather a good conversation to help you know and and that vulnerability concept is is to me important um and that comes through. I mean, I hope it comes. I hope. I mean, I'm, I'm happy you say that because, of course, people say that I'm very mean. Um, I don't. I don't. I would say that what I was trying to do was to talk about what happens when you abandon an objective classification for a subjective classification. And the thing, as soon as you get to subjective classifications, they may suit people better because they don't like the objective one, but other people have opinions and rights and perceptions too. So at least with objective classifications, everyone can agree on them. You know, if you if you really objectively say some people are male and some people are female, and the female sports are only for female people, everybody knows what the rules are. And we do that because it's best for female people. And the fact is that's going to leave out some male people who would like to be in that group. But we're doing it for a good reason. And it's actually a kind reason, a compassionate reason. It's being compassionate to the half of humanity that's female. But once you move to the subjective, well, you've got some men who identify as women, but women don't think they're women. Like the women who want to have women-only sport don't think those men are women. So now you've got two subjective versions of reality mm. and they clash and you can't make everybody happy in that situation. And if you allow the man who identifies as a woman to compete as a woman, all the women who want to compete just with women lose out. And yes, he gains. But, you know... <laughs> At a cost. And I mean, I, that's all I'm saying, really, is that when you validate people's subjective identities, other people's perceptions and other people's rights and other people's desire to have objectively delineated groups uh, gets gets harmed. So we have to think about that. Like, what are we going to do about it? You know, in some situations, it might not matter. So, I mean, to pick one, um, sometimes countries have laws about um, differential pension rates like, you know, you start your pension at a different age if you're a man or a woman, or they um, have laws that allow you to have quotas for women in certain situations. Now, I would argue that in those situations, those laws are based on the fact that men's and women's lives are different. 
But if you if you allow some people, just a few people to change category, you're not massively affecting anybody else's rights. Like, you know, if a man's pension, if a few men's pensions start at a different age, like women don't really lose out. But if you have something like sport or a changing room, just having one man in there changes the situation for every woman. And it's those situations that I want us to be compassionate to everybody and not to think because there's been this incredibly like a hyper myopic focus just on the trans identified person. Like that if you don't accept their identity, that you are invalidating them, that you are, you know, erasing their existence, that you are hurting them, that you are making them commit suicide. That's even that threat is is said, even given what you said about the foolishness of suggest selling suicide to people. But what about all the other people? That's what I keep wanting to say. Like, what about the people who needed that person not to be allowed in? Mm -hmm. And the the importance of of the observer, you know, that's the objective. That, that that's the things that we we can all agree on in the physical sense. Yes. And then to go out and say, well, we're going to abandon that and run with the subjective, and and, and in there lies the the problem. At least because proportionally the observer is is the standard that we all live by you know and and we kind of get this as well with with all rules like you know subjectively yes. most of us think that we're safer than the average person in driving uh, exactly uh, so like can, why shouldn't i be allowed to vehicle faster yes. um but we know yes. through observation that the faster you are traveling the greater the risks. And and that's just statistically sound. You know, anyone that is traveling yes. at 120 kilometers an hour um, is is at greater risk because, you know, for all the obvious reasons, um, yeah. versus their subjective belief that they've actually got a great handle on the vehicle. And yeah, there, there will be times where they do have a great handle on the vehicle. Yes. Going on a highway and it's straight and great conditions. But but it's, when you live in a society, you have to accept constraints on yourself in yes. return for other people accepting constraints. You know, so, mm. I mean, when they when there are rules that are, you know, and rules do have to be cut and dried. Like you have to say no under 10s in this playground or, you know, no pregnant women on this fairground ride or something like some of them will be fine. But as soon as you say that, you can't have the rule and then you are not going to be able to have the facility. Like you, you wouldn't be able to run fairground rides unless you were able to say, you know, nobody with certain health conditions can come on this ride. And so, you know, yes, there are some men who are so small or weak that they don't pose a serious competitive threat to women. But I mean, how are we to do this case by case? Hmm. Like if women are if women are to have competitive sport, given that men's and women's bodies are very different, then women have to be able to have sport with no no men. And that may feel very uncomfortable or mean to some men, but you know what? It's the only way to be fair to 50% of humanity. And it does, it, it, I do feel like, you know, you sort of asked at the beginning, you know, how has this grown to be? Like, how has this got to be this size of a phenomenon? And one of the reasons has to be that we are abandoning a lot of a lot of ideas of objective truth, things that we all agree on. Um, and we think, you know, everybody has their truth. And also this abandoning of um, thought and fact in favor of feeling. So if somebody tells you, you know, my identity is this and I feel that, that's meant to be an unchallengeable remark. And I don't want to challenge it. I know I know that's how they feel. That's fine. It, it's just not something that affects me. I feel it's like their religion. 
Like people's religions are incredibly important to them and I don't want to change other people's religions, mm. but I'm not going to play along. Like I'm not going to follow their eating rules or how, you know, keep the Sabbath holy or, you know, genuflect the altar or any of those things. They're, I just, I, they, it's not my religion. And what I would like to see is that we move towards thinking about gender identity in the same way that we think about religion, which is that there's a secular common space in which there's freedom of expression, freedom of religion, freedom of belief, but nobody else has to go along with it. Mm. Well, well, it's such an important point because the otherwise, I think that point that we went through earlier is otherwise we are telling people that the world should be in a certain way, which is highly distressing yes. when it's not. Like it blew yes, my exactly. mind when I saw that the Olympics started to uh, create provisions um, for you know biological men who've gone through puberty. And as a matter of fact, we should just not even care about that. Just just boys going, you know, competing yeah. against girls. Yeah. Period. Irrespective exactly. of irrespective of you know puberty and that because that that just muddies the waters again right yeah um, it's just boy it, exactly it's male and female yeah that, that that's right the fact that that went through in my mind i immediately said that's gonna have to be wound back um because it just yes, functionally it, it, it objectively uh, just breaks everything because it just makes no sense it's going to at least over time it would become that no women would be uh, uh, competing because it would be men, and then there would be the trans, um, and because yeah. that would just what it, what what from a population point of view occur in your top, you know, fifty yeah. athletes in any sport, um, at yeah. least in the ones that are male dominated because of physique, and which is nearly all of them because men are bigger, stronger, far, yeah, yeah, you know, we're not yeah. talking about chess or something that that you know is irrespective. Yeah. We're talking about you know, physical sports. Um, so I thought to myself. This is not going to, this isn't sustainable. You know, you can't do powerlifting. Um, uh, And and then use that as an example that, oh, you know, they didn't get as far as they thought. Yeah, well, that's because it was a 40-year-old man that, you know, is not in in his prime. Um, It's like, yes, that's a really ridiculous example because, you know, we just know the statistics, you know. uh, And I'm not a statistician by any stretch of the imagination, but, um, you know, I'm a human and I can be objective, you know, and, and that that that's what's so painful to see young people and older people going through suffering that I think is not healthy for them because we're reinforcing this stuff because of a thing that we call what I call experiential avoidance. We're avoiding having yes. a difficult conversation. We're avoiding oh, that's so becoming right. upset. Yes, that's so right. And people don't want to say no. And, you know, it used to be that people understood you didn't even ask. Like there's a sign that people used to have in shops. Um, I'm sure that they don't have it anymore, but maybe maybe they had this in Australia too. But certainly when I was a child, a shopkeeper would put up a sign that said, do not ask for credit because a refusal often offends. And And now it's as if people have been told that it's their human right to ask for credit. And then when you refuse, they say, well, you're now you're a bigot. And if you think what you said about sports, that we can't, we, you know, it, I think you're completely right. We are not going to continue to allow men to identify into women's sports. It's just too absurd and it's too visual how absurd it is. Well, you know, it's the same in women's spaces. It's the same in rape crisis centres, domestic shelters, prisons and so on. All the same arguments hold. It's just not as visual. 
And if we get to the point that we say, look, women's rights do depend on the fact that no men can come into these spaces. And then you wind it back and you imagine that you've got a boy, a little boy who says to you, I ardently wish that I was a girl and think that I am a girl. And you play that boy's life forward and you say, you know, well, we can call you a girl. We can ask your friends to call you a girl. We can um, give you puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones and so on. But you're never going to be allowed to go into the spaces that only girls are allowed into because you're not a girl. At that point, wouldn't you think to yourself, well, it's not very kind to say to him, we can do the whole social transition. We can say that you're called a girl. Like those things are predicated on if you do all this stuff, you will be allowed to do everything that women are allowed to do. But you won't be. And I think we're in this transitional period right now where significant numbers of children have been told they can do something, and adults as well, by the way, and that if they go through this process of social transition and perhaps medical transition as well, the rest of society will allow them to be treated as a member of the opposite sex. And now a quite significant backlash is happening against the consequences of allowing people to be treated as members of the opposite sex. And, and it's being experienced as a refusal and hateful by people who were promised that they could have something. And I hate that because those people should never have been promised that in the first place. Because it wasn't fair. Nobody asked other people. Nobody asked women in workplaces if it was OK that their male colleague who's transitioning could start using the women's toilets and showers. Because the women would have said no. Hmm. And then the man would have understood that he couldn't come to work telling everybody that he was a woman. But he has, and now he's there, and now we have to say no. And it's all been put on women, which is just deeply unfair. We should never have been asked to accommodate this. Hmm. Helen, where do, you, where do you think this leads to? You've got you know plenty of experience. You've observed uh, you know lots of life. You, you're, you're a researcher, a journalist. You um, have an academic hat. Um, where do you think this this plays out? I mean, I can project in the Olympics. I I think it just goes back yeah. to the two the, the two sports, the two genders. Um, uh, but that's that I could be wrong. Who knows? Um, but no, I, I'm sure I, you're right. I, I'm I, really I, sure I you're right in all competitive sports. They, there might be some sort of concessions that that they try and play with for a while, but I think they will fizzle out because it's you know, it's not something that uh, I think a large proportion of people are going to. You know what, what 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 one to watch it was you know really difficult to to get the um uh, 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 yeah to to get other sports you know women's sports up and running for example because they um haven't found that 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 uh viewership for example but it, it's progressing now certainly in australia there's wonderful things going on um but where do you think it'll happen it'll go to in 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 uh, you know the medical world the psychological yes. world in particular i'd love to hear your thoughts um uh, how do you see this playing out i mean it's a big question because as you say there's medical psychological societal you know specific case cases like sports um i do think that it's going to end in tears on the medical and psychological front because the practice is so damaging that it's going to be like lobotomies. You know, uh, I mean, that was a treatment that was based on a false idea of how the brain worked. Um, and it was an intervention that was um, like, it seems obvious to us now that you shouldn't do that. 
But at the time, it seemed like it was a paradigm that worked. Well, we're in, we're in that. We're in a false paradigm right now. We're in a paradigm that you can like reliably lifelong reduce people's suffering by responding to statements about their gender in a certain way. And I simply don't believe that that's true. And we're already seeing detransition. So I think we're going to see really very significant numbers of people coming and saying that the medical and psychological professions damaged them. And that's horrible because a lot of those people were children and the harm that was done to them is irreversible. So, yeah, I think and I think there's going to be lawsuits, um, there's going to be malpractice. But of course, a lot of people who did harm are not ever going to be held to account for that because they're going to say they were working within their professional standards. I can't imagine that we will be still putting children on a pathway that leads to sterilization in 10 or 20 years. I think that will be over. Um, I think sport, as you say, will go back to being the two sexes. I'm afraid that I think that certain women-only spaces may be lost for good um, because they were based on social convention, not on anything that we checked. So if you think about toilets as the, the quintessential example, you know, women fought long and hard to get women's toilets. There used to be any, and women wouldn't be able to go into public places. It stopped women from leaving the home in Victorian era, to, that there was nowhere safe that they could use the loo. Because women have to undress the bottom half of their bodies to use the toilet in a way that men don't. So women are vulnerable. Like it's it's a, a really, it's a vulnerable moment when you're using the toilet. Um, so it was called the urinary leash. It kept women at home because there wasn't anywhere safe that they could urinate. Um and we've forgotten that. But so that's the quintessential space that to, to act fully and move in the world, women need safe toilets. But it was it's never been policed. Like in the workplace, it is a bit policed. And that if one of your male colleagues keeps coming into the women's toilets, the women can go to HR and complain and he can be told he's got to stop and he'll be fired if he doesn't stop, you know. But in a shopping centre or at the cinema or something like that, like it's always just been social convention that's kept men out of women's spaces and women out of men's spaces. And we've broken that social convention. So most women by now have had the experience of going into a women's toilet and there's a man there and you don't know what to do. You know that if you say to him, this is the women's toilet, there's the risk that he'll say, I am a woman. And you also know you're in an enclosed space he's much bigger and stronger than you. He's already indicated by his presence in that space that he is someone who is willing to overstep women's boundaries. And women know that that's the most dangerous sort of man, like a man who indicates that he's unconcerned about women's um, fears, and women's vulnerabilities. That's a very dangerous man. But that's already really happening and really hard to roll back. So you'll see on Twitter um, or on other social media platforms, quite a lot of of trans-identified men, like men who identify as women, saying, you know, if anyone tells me I'm not entitled to be in the women's um, spaces, I'll punch them. I feel like I know, I know, I know that's what would happen. Like, I'm afraid. So you go in and you see a man and you come back out and you wait and you wait until he's gone. So I'm afraid that we will lose. We've already lost the social convention that was so important in keeping women safe. But, you know, if we stop sterilizing children, that would be a very good start. Mm. You said 10 I think or we will start years. Um, do you think it will yeah. take that, that, that long? Because Oh, yeah, easily, easily. This is going to see me out, I'm afraid. Wow. Why are you so convinced of that? Like, what? And because uh, laws have changed. Um, it, it, this has been okay. a, an amazing two-step between law and medicine. 
and it's it's been quite long run. It's you know it's really about 1960, I would say, that it started in any earnest. And it was tiny numbers, of course, but clinicians were creating um, people who had anomalous bodies, like they were doing surgeries on people's genitals. So these people looked anomalous. They looked, you know, semi as if they were members of the opposite sex. And those people found it very, very hard to travel or to work in a very highly gendered world. So bureaucrats and legal systems responded by changing their paperwork. And then once the paperwork was changed, clinicians could say, oh, if we do this, they'll change your paperwork. So more people did it. And over time, it became a kind of almost a right. And now it kind of is a right, like lots of countries and lots of state laws and provincial laws say that you have the right to change your paperwork to say that you're a member of the opposite sex. And when taking things back from people is incredibly, incredibly difficult, even when they're things you shouldn't have given them in the first place. Like a rule of thumb in politics is that if you pass a really bad law, it'll take you 20 years to get rid of it. And we've done that. And and then with medicine, like a doctor who understands that what they have done is um, concretize a child's passing distress in a way that will have lifelong impact on that child, really serious impacts, like shorten their life, damage their health, damage their fertility and so on. That person has to have a significant amount of moral courage to face up to what they did. And mostly people don't. What they do is they double down. They keep denying that what they did was so bad. And we by now have a lot of people who are complicit, an awful lot of doctors, therapists, teachers as well. Like A lot of teachers are, are affirming children's gender identities in school or referring them. Those teachers are doing a very bad thing. It's what they were told to do in their training. But they are now complicit in harm and people tend to just keep doing things rather than ever admit that they were complicit in harm. I really think that we've done something very bad. Mm. Helen, when you explain it like that, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I, I think about the world of psychology and 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 for me, I'm very passionate about uh, uh, softening and, and breaking down categories, you know, the, 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 the DSM. Um, uh, there's great value mm. in the DSM because there's so many observable truths as the objective side, you know, so it's like, this is all very much understood as, you know, if anyone's a, you know, a, a, a clinician worth their salt, they will say, yes, I've observed the things in the DSM in my clients. Yes. Uh, but I think there is that there needs to be at least a conversation about saying, what's the value of categories? Um, and what's yeah, the, the label? Of, yeah, the label. That's right. And what's the value of how we practice labels? Because it's yes. not common practice that I've observed, whether it's in my training or in my practice, that we remove labels. So it's very right. uncommon to for me to hear that clinicians have a conversation with clients saying, "You no longer meet the criteria for X." Interesting. Yes. Uh, maybe there's maybe yes. there's another book for you there because I would love to be part of that conversation. Um, we we often say, "Here's your label," and unfortunately, it becomes a lifelong label for many. Yeah. But we don't. And say it becomes something you that you live up to. Sorry. Yeah, and it becomes something you live up to. It becomes your identity again, you know, and and we yeah. know that rigidity, you know, psychological rigidity is is so much part of human suffering and 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 the this, this act model i think is very affirming it's compassionate it, it says we're going to affirm how you're experiencing the world and feeling the world 
um, but assist you with relating to that differently because it's unhelpful. Um, yes. And so rather than doing experiential avoidance, we, we do a thing called experiential acceptance, you know, making space mm-hmm. for for those pains. But uh, I think you're right. It's probably going to take a long time. I, I, um, maybe I'm an optimist at heart and I, I, I and, and, and I, I like to think I'm a scientist practitioner and that science prevails, but um, doesn't always. It takes um, its time. Yeah. If yeah. people want to read more from a very psychologically informed and compassionate um, point of view, like since I've written my book, that which is now two and a bit years old, Quite a lot of other people have written books in this field, and there's two books that I would point people to, um, which are interesting for people who work in therapy or in the psychological professions. And one of them is called When Kids Say They're Trans, and it's by a trio of therapists from different um, traditions, uh, Stella O'Malley, Lisa Marciano and Sasha Ayad. And it's just a lovely book and it's got all, you know, really helpful advice for what parents should understand and know and how they can respond to their child's pain or confusion in an open-ended, supportive way, you know, given that other people are telling them very unhelpful things in school and online. And then a book that's just come out by a doctor, a a psychiatrist here in the UK, um, Dr. Az Hakim, which is just called D-Trans. Um, So he's a really interesting chap. He worked at the adult clinic for gender dysphoria here in London for quite a while. And it's a very, it's a strange, it's it's a strange service within a very psychological um, centre, like, because it's very medical. But it wasn't when he was working there. It was, it was still very therapeutic, very um, analytical. And what he did for a long time, for some number of years, is he ran a mixed session between people who wanted to transition and people who had transitioned. And that was, and he, he made a group with those two groups together. I think still the only time that anyone has ever done this. And what he found was that, that people didn't, didn't continue with their medical transition when they got to know people who had already done medical transition. Because they got a much more realistic idea of it. They abandoned their very fantasy idea that they could really have their bodies transformed and become new people. And that, you know, everything that was bad about their past life could be sloughed away. And, you know, they came out like a phoenix as a new person. You know, they saw people who still had whatever problems they had pre-transition, you know, had to struggle with maybe acceptance or, you know, that the body didn't change the way that they thought it would or whatever. And they just became much more realistic in their thinking about transition. And most of them didn't go ahead anyway. So he's, he became very interested in the phenomenon of detransition. And he's written a book which has a set of essays and some case studies of people who've transitioned. Now he's very skeptical about the modern approach, like the, the, the main approach now. So, I mean, he's very much from that point of view. So I'd recommend those to the sort of audience mm. that somebody like you has. And then, of course, there's my book, which tries to look at the consequences of the idea for women, for children, for gay people, like for everybody. But they're the three groups that are most impacted. Um, yeah. And so that's the sort of further reading, reading I would recommend. Yeah. Thank you. And look, for for, for listeners, um, Helen Joyce's book is Trains, When Ideology Meets Reality. And um, I, I listened to it on, on Audible. Um but I'm I'm assuming it's it's Amazon and um you know all, yeah it's available in all the usual places now it has been reissued with a new title, which mm-hmm. is transgender identity and the new and the new battle for women's rights. So I've only ever written one book, sure. so if it's by me and it starts trans, it's the same book. There's no text difference, 
uh yeah and i mean i recorded the audiobook so that's one way to listen to it um and then the other things that i do if people want to know more about what i do um i have a newsletter at thehelenjoyce.com and i have a regular monthly column in an english magazine called the critic but the best way to keep up with what i do is on twitter i tweet much too much uh, so my handle is at @hjoycegender and I would always post anything that I'm doing or reading or thinking about or writing there. Fantastic. And Helen, if I could uh, please um, finish off with with saying, you know, an, an immense thank you. Um, and, and, and it's a thank you for holding this conversation in such a respectful way, I think in a nuanced way that takes the time to not try and alienate any uh, anyone or any population or, or anything but but trying to distinguish between you know the observable um, and the subjective, and holding both of those with great dignity and respect and, and, and kindness and thought, uh, I think your book has done that. And certainly this, this this conversation, I'm I'm sorry to hear that you know sometimes you do uh, uh, get backlash um, uh, because. I think conversation and, and nuanced conversation is so valuable, even if it's uncomfortable. You know, I'm happy to be mm. uh, proven wrong. As a matter of fact, I pride myself in in learning. Um, you know, and and you know, I'm definitely going to get your book um, on 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 pedophilia as well because that's a space that I can certainly. Uh, uh, yeah, I haven't written a book on it. I've only written articles. Oh, yeah. sorry, articles. So. I, I'll, I will look those those, yeah, those yeah. articles up because. You know, once again, uh, I'll use a harsher word, um, uh, but ignorance, you know, is, is is highly problematic, and I, I don't think that's something that we yes. intend to be. But I think with busy lives, we are ignorant of most things, you know, and and we can't. Of course, we can't help that. Yes, the, the, the entire world for everything. Um, but if we're going to have an opinion on something, I think we either need to uh, become learned. Um, or reserve judgment. Um, uh, yes, or, that's exactly or, right. Or, or have a capacity to to use our language in a way where we've got enough caveats to actually, I'd like to say, objectively say things that create psychological flexibility, that there's room for conversation mm -hmm. rather than, you know, really harsh things which are critical and um uh, hold huge assumptions and and you know in in sometimes uh quite you know um pointed and critical at, at others where i don't think it helps with the conversation certainly no one comes out you know better as a human being so helen thank you so much for for your time today well, i'd like to say thank um, you to you too i mean it's easy it's easier not to have these conversations as many people find uh, you know they worry that uh you know the people who who want to completely paint what I'm doing and what people like me are saying in very, very uncharitable and inaccurate light. You know, it's easier to just avoid us and avoid the controversy. And for me, I'm going to take away what you said about discomfort. Um, you know, that would, what did you, did you, you called it something avoidance? Uh, experiential um, avoidance. Experiential so, avoidance. So That's what I'm going to take away myself from this conversation. If you look up Steve Hayes's work, which is from Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, one of the great tenets in that is experiential avoidance, which is very similar to the Buddhist 
philosophy of of uh, attachment. When someone holds tightly yes. on something, they they um, grasp. Um, it's a powerful concept, and I think it, it deserves lots of um, time and energy and repetition so that we can all learn from it because it's hard to live by it. Yes. Well, I'm now going to think about that because, you know, without knowing that phrase, I have encouraged my children, for example, to do things they might fail at and and then to accept that they failed and the world didn't end. It didn't feel good, but they survived and they know they can survive. So that was what I was thinking when you said that. And I want to think more on that thought and read more about it. So thank you. Thank you so much, Helen. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review, subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.